Hello, listeners. My name is Aaron Popat, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. I am delighted to welcome Bjorn von Siemens, co-founder and CBO of Care Syntax. Bjorn completed his undergraduate education at the European Business School in Ostrichtwinkel, following which he completed an MSc right here at the LSE in accounting and finance. Finally, Bjorn continued to conduct postgraduate research at the University of St. Gallen and Harvard. Bjorn then was an active investor and advisor of technology ventures and realized that he wanted to found Care Syntax and is a recognized thought leader in areas of applied IoT and AI technologies. How are you today? Hi, Aaron. I'm very well. Thank you. To get started, please, can you explain your background a little bit more? Sure. Happy to. So I'm originally from Germany. I grew up in Bernhaus, Swedish Hauptstadt, German, actually, and spent most of my youth in Europe, Germany, France, and the UK. And from the beginning was drawn to healthcare, essentially, as a profession and as an area. So I wanted to become an intensive care physician and then decided at some point to do something more in the business area because of more international exposure and yeah, different, different reasons. And yeah, after finishing the studies, I worked in a few different positions in the healthcare area. Um, I was with Siemens Health in years out of Asia. Um, I spent some time at uh, Boston Consulting Group, been a company advising clients in health insurance and consumer health. And then I had the opportunity to work in mid-cap private equity, also focusing on health care companies out of the US and got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug, I would say at around 2006, seven, also in tune with, with my PhD thesis that was on the subject matter and got into it around the 2007-8 financial crash, which was an interesting time uh, to uh, both be an entrepreneur and investor. <laughs> so um, some of the earlier investments um, I made or we made were quite successful early on. And yeah, ever since I focused on digital health, really improving the current state of healthcare systems in, in Europe and in the United States with the solutions that help optimize workflow, make things more efficient, more safe for patients, more cost-effective and accessible. So all the good things that come with digitalization, easier access, if you wish, democratization of healthcare. And yeah, I'm very fond of my LSE background. I really love my time at the school. I think it's a fantastic platform to meet great people and to be in London and learn about specific areas. So very happy to be back here and in touch with the school. And also recently, one and a half years ago, moved back to London. And just for our listeners as well, Bjorn won't tell you this, but not only did he study at LSE, but he was in a very, very high percentile for achievement and was one of the top achieving pupils at the school when he was here and has a consistently strong academic career, which has been coupled again with a consistently strong business career. So we've got a lot to learn over this interview. Thanks so much for that. So could you do us a favor and actually explain what Care Syntax do and then what it looks like to work in Care Syntax at the exact meeting point of business and healthcare, in my opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy to answer all of this in, in one sentence, obviously. So maybe starting with what is, what is it that we do at Care Syntax? We, we believe that surgery is a pretty under-digitized space and it's a very important area of therapy in hospitals. So it's about um, half of the revenue of the hospital comes from the surgical department. There's 400 million surgeries every year with conducted globally with the growth trend. There are a lot of variability of outcomes. So both in terms of costs, but also in terms of quality and complications. 
<clears throat> and we believe that there are software tools and data tools out there used in other industries, such as commercial airline, industrial automation, where we've, we've managed as humanity to create environments which are very safe and which don't have 5 to 15% complication rates or problem rates. And we're deploying that within the surgical environment. So you can think of us as an integrated guidance system for the surgeon and surgical team to follow best practice processes and different surgical interventions. And it's also a tool for the management, the C-suite of the hospital to really understand quality and efficiency. So from a data perspective, <clears throat> and all of that platform is something completely new that really no one has developed so far. We were quite early with it. So in the beginning, we were too early for the market, but now not only since COVID, but also because of the, the recent issues that hospitals have, everybody realizes they need to become more digital, they need to become more integrated from a data perspective. And that's helping companies like ours to have an easier entry. And yeah, working at the intersection between tech and healthcare is, I think, very fascinating for people around us. So we have a lot of people that join because they had cases in their family that went wrong. We have people that join because they want to, they, they come from healthcare background and want to improve the current state with technologists that love to apply what they learned in other industries in, in surgery, which is a very high acuity area. And so I think, I would hope that we are a cool place to work at. And I think that most of our people know what their mission is when they get up in the morning, because even if you can just save one patient, right? Or if you can save somebody a lot of pain post-surgically, it's already almost enough. And we're now doing it with hundreds of thousands of minutes of surgeries every year. So it's a, it's a big mission. It would be great to know a bit more about like your personal accolades. You mentioned your PhD earlier, your academic stuff, what exactly you specialized in research. And then how did you transition from that academic background into the consulting, entrepreneurial, venture capital style, and then into being hyper-successful founder? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say from an academic perspective, especially in the later stage of my career, I'm a pretty big failure. I didn't really make it in the PhD path that I was taking. It was not consistent with my personality. And even though at LSE, I, I wrote a master's thesis, it was a very short stint. It was maybe like a two-month sprint or maybe even two weeks sprint. I don't know. <laughs> but the doing, doing PhD research over five, seven, ten years is something completely different and so I realized that and dropped out. So I never completed that step of the academic career. Although I enjoyed, what I enjoyed a lot was more the interactive, the teaching aspects and the interactions also with other researchers. But that was the way that I transitioned into entrepreneurship because I realized what I really like to do is I like to deal with, have to deal with people that are knowledgeable and interested and passionate about something they are doing. And in, in the area that we're now in and the way that the company developed, we're now dealing really with or interacting with some of the most interesting and forward-thinking people in our field, which is both challenging and rewarding, but it hasn't been a straight line. So similar to um, experiencing failures in, in, on the academic side, there were a lot of things that are, went wrong and are going wrong in the business. So as an entrepreneur, you have to get used to, I think it's a seven to one ratio or something like this. So for every time something goes right, you can expect seven times that things go wrong. So you have yeah. to build up the resiliency and you have to live with, with a lot of failures. And so early on in, in the company, we had a lot of situations and moments where things could have gone both ways. And then it's about many persistence 
and yeah, network and support from both the, in this case, financing community, but also the family in a way yeah. to get through it emotionally and financially. <clears throat> and that's, that's how we got here. And that's how I got here. Yeah, I think original thing I was going to say is that I think a lot of LSE students can relate to you when you talk about the, the nature of the sprint from the last part of your answer. I, I also started to think about how it is so important like to have a great support network around you to make sure things are always like functioning and, and no matter how many times you have those 7, 14, 21 failures <laughs> that something is going right around you. So it's a great insight and really appreciate that. I'm sure our listeners will as well. So talking about like care syntax specific, what made you decide there was like a gap in the market? How did you find that spot? And then what caused you to found the firm and create it in the way that it operates today? Yeah, I think it's it really started with a top-down research on healthcare space because both my co-founder and I, so Kevin, I have a partner, we wanted to get into healthcare and specifically digital healthcare. And we had a prior venture that was more biotech that was quite also quite successful and this continued to be successful. But we decided that um, it was a bit too... I would say research intensive and science intensive for us as non-scientists to be able to grasp it. So we wanted to do digital health and then we analyzed what is what are the still under digitized parts of our healthcare system and of different areas of the healthcare system. And we looked at and then over 170 companies to get into the business because we wanted to not start from zero, but buy something. And, and then we, we found a few companies who were in surgery and that had already a lot of good clients and we, yeah, we thought that's a good basis on the one hand. Surgical market is massive. I think two and a half trillion dollar market globally. And there's not a lot of digitalization and there's no one doing it from a platform perspective. So if you're thinking about platform, you always have to think vendor neutral and there's a lot of vendors in the space. There's, you know, the Medtronics, Philips, the J&Js of the world. But when they create a digital system, they were always created around their own device or their own therapy. And that will inherently have disadvantages because then you are in a closed system. And then again, you don't have that interoperability of data. So having a vendor neutral approach to surgery, I think is, is very important. And is one of the key differentiators that we have in the market still now. And that was a big idea. And it's still a big idea we're following to be this partner for the hospitals and for the surgeons to um, work without being tied to anybody that tries to sell you something else on a daily basis and make your life easier and safer. Thank you. you. You spoke about that quite in depth. So your role at the firm, right? Starting off with, as a co-founder, going into that CBO position and you're holding that for an extended period of time, you have to wear so many hats and care syntax is no small operation, right? You're doing very intelligent things with very large clients all the time. So with that wearing many hats, what would you say your lifestyle is like at the moment and how has it changed since the conception of, of the company? So in the beginning, we were starting as managing directors, and I would still say that my partner and I, we are taking decisions on a daily basis together. So it was a very much collaborative effort. So there was a variety of jobs and roles I had within the company from you know, CEO to COO and now landing in the CBO role, which is more externally facing capital markets side, is really fits my personality and fits what I like to do and what I'm good at. And that took some time to figure out. And yeah, I guess that's also for, for anybody going into a specific industry or having the dream of working in a specific space, maintaining a bit of mental flexibility of maybe not having to be in that specific role or filling, filling out a specific niche is, is good because then you can iterate and really find something that you like doing. And, and so that's on the professional side. On the personal side, our lifestyle has been 
tough because of a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of travel and yeah, not being able to, you know, really be in a place for a prolonged period of time or spend a lot of time with, with family and friends is, is not easy. And it's a typical entrepreneurial journey, by the way. Most people I know who are in that in the grind, they, <laughs> they have the same issues. And yeah, and now in the end, on the sunnier side, there is more flexibility and there's more freedom now um, to do what I wanted to and to work how I want to work. And even more so now with, with COVID, working from home, I've had my first child, 10 months old daughter, being able to thank you being able to spend time with her almost daily is amazing and so that's a good side from a lifestyle perspective being an entrepreneur in tech or even just working in tech in most cases enables that yeah i think it can be very demoralizing especially like for a lot of people at university or starting businesses so it's a great insight for people to hang on <laughs> keep motivated and you know keep pushing through because you'll come out the other end fingers crossed and now looking at the firm and what exactly you do um as mentioned before, I don't come from a scientific background, so I spent a good amount of time trying to research what was going on. And I was wondering if you could explain what the process looks like for our more scientific listeners as to what building the products you offer looks like. I've mentioned here surgical intelligence using video and big data, because I think a lot of our, our listeners would be interested in big data specifically. But if there's any others you think are worth talking about, I'd love to hear about it, how it's built and then how it's implemented in the actual, I guess, process <laughs> from start to finish, if that makes sense. Because it's so complex, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated area. And I think just from a fundamental perspective, there's two layers. One is what you can call this operating system for the operating room. So this is a system that is used on a daily basis and during surgery to manage the process digitally, paperless, that before that was used um, used to be managed in different systems and with paper. So it's digital surgery. And the, the way that we did this is by connecting different devices and operating with prior to this were not connected and harmonizing data streams into one unified database. And from this data and collecting this data, we were able to learn and develop hypotheses about how to improve the day-to-day -day life in the operating room. So helping the surgeons with more automation, with more guidance systems during surgery to prevent mistakes or to make things easier and more efficient in terms of you know, documentation or in terms of getting expert advice and operating on what doing training for surgeons. So that's one area. And then the other area is really directed at the hospital C-suite and administration and for them to manage dozens of different teams in different surgical departments across different sites is very difficult, even more so if you have multiple hospitals, or even if you look at it from a country perspective, like here in the NHS, looking at surgery and at the quality of surgery and at the waiting lists for, for specific interventions, having the ability to manage that data from a data-driven perspective, that's what we, what we can do. And so the base technologies we're using are IoT and edge computing, so systems that we deploy in the operating room to grab the data from, let's say, a video source from an endoscope or from an imaging device or from anesthesia or vital parameters and room cameras and robotic systems. And so that's IoT part. And then on the, on the software side, we're using just data visualization technologies and workflow software tools. And then we have an AI team that is working on advanced analytics. So what you're talking about in terms of big data analytics or a video analytics, that's what's handled in this team where we really look in detail, for example, at hundreds of thousands of videos to analyze a more optimal way how to conduct a specific tree or to create warning systems for the surgeon. And there's a 
a lot of applications that are being developed and will be developed. I think we will only cover from Kesson Tech side only cover a smaller part of it. But our platform is open, and because we're vendor neutral and open, others can use that data to develop their own algorithms or their own ideas and market them on the platform. Now, given a change in direction for how governments and companies are positioning themselves in terms of healthcare, so specifically looking at like private and public sector divide and how things are becoming in some places more privatized, some places more public, how do you see the future of this, the, the healthcare industry in regard to your personal business negotiations? So how are you adapting to c- consistently changing philosophies on how business practices should be run in the healthcare industry? Yeah, I think that the biggest trend probably to watch out for and to position yourself with is something called value-based care. Actually, it's just what it means is providing payments for quality of outcomes in the end. So you're not currently, if you have, let's say, surgical intervention and you have the same surgical intervention one year later, and then one year later, you have the same surgical intervention every time the, the hospital or surgeon makes revenue. So <laughs> the, the idea is to, to not look at that model of uh, fee-for-service or at quantity of care delivered or diagnostic delivered, but actually the impact on the individual patient's life. So quality of life, how on what quality level and service level was the procedure or the diagnostic intervention conducted and really aligning the incentives and the motivation of everyone in the system around that. And that's a massive challenge that the US has, but also other systems have, that it's very hard to measure this. It's getting easier with more data, both from a patient side and from the hospital side. So this will be one of the most important transformation um, transformational forces in healthcare industries and healthcare systems around the world, moving from fee-for-service to value-based. And that's one trend to watch out for. Then you have other trends like in other industries as well, a lot of automation, a lot of yeah, data enablement. There is extremely interesting scientific advancements that are um, happening over the next years in genomics, in, as I mentioned, robotics, in, in the AI field. Yeah, I think you end up at an intersection, right, for your firm decision-making and for governments and you know larger decision-makers in the grand scheme of spending as to where alignment values exist right where, where do you philosophically draw a line where do you politically draw a line and that that value-based um healthcare system you're talking about is actually a really interesting way of looking at it and i'm sure our listeners will have their own opinions on on, on what, what what they believe is correct in that in that space so moving on one final question about the firm and then we'll do a couple more personal and then we'll round off the interview how do you keep innovating to make sure your firm is always on top of the industry i imagine disruptors are like consistently right yeah it's a matter of being connected to um, the leading users and the leading minds in the space. So being working with you know the top surgeons, being in touch with really great hospitals, great institutions, working with top medical device companies, you you see the future, how it's being shaped, and then anticipating what is needed next and building it. That's how we innovate from a bottom up and then top down, following our vision. There's, there's going to be a platform. Somebody will build it. We're trying to build it and putting together the pieces that are necessary and anticipating the developments. It's how we innovate within within the business. And then my next question was regarding your VC background. On Focal Point, we have a lot of huge business leaders that don't necessarily have as much experience in the VC world. So it'd be great to find out a little bit more about your journey in that world and specifically for graduate careers in the space or at the lower level. So between 22 and 30 years old, where people sit and how how the, the space functions for that age group, because that's our listener base, if that makes sense. Yeah. So... 
I mean, I think getting into VC and getting into the investment world is has a couple of angles and a couple of routes to it. And the first one is going in via the analyst route. So you, you graduate, you apply to a bunch of companies or firms that are doing VC investments or that are doing P investments. And um, then you can kind of find your way in and move up the, the value chain over years. That's, that's one way. And the other way is kind of nonlinear, entrepreneurial or, and or yeah, going through maybe different sets of, I would say, positions that give you a similar skill set that you need. So you might go work for a family office or you might go work for a corporate PC, a corporate investor, and then kind of move over into the investment business. But in general, what I've found is that any career is kind of a long game and especially investment careers are long games. So if you, if you think about joining a VC fund, the, VC, the investors will see their returns in seven years. And then the more you're in it, the more you build your network, the better you get at sourcing deals or valuing deals or sourcing capital. If you're more on the fundraising or capital formation side, the more, the, the more expensive it gets to change to a different job. So I guess short answer is there is a direct way into it and preparing for that is going to be speaking to as many people from the industry as you can and kind of picking a couple of areas that they're really passionate about and that you can talk about what your investment ideas would be or what you would look for. And the other way would be to go start a company. And then once you're, once you bring it to success, be it the first company, second or third company, then you can also switch into the VC side of things because VCs, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, and then you kind of jump over analyst associates, VP level, and you go to kind of principal or partner level very, very directly and can yeah, immediately start making bigger, bigger, bigger decisions. Yeah. I think that's a great comprehensive like wrap up of the traditional and non-traditional methods of breaking into and understanding the inner workings of VC. So thanks for that. Now, again, more personal. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners for activities they can do specifically to build their own personal leadership skills? And we talked about it earlier, right? How you've got to like mentor these people and lead these like crazy intelligent minds every day. In the end, leadership is about being an inspiration in a way that you do things and then being able to consistently and very patiently communicate with people. <laughs> and it's very hard. To, I think to be a great leader is very, very hard because you need to have both, both sides. You need to be kind of consistent in how you behave and what you do and you need to have the, the patience and the passion to explain everything 15 times to everybody and like take people by the hand and have invest a lot of time into that. I think one, one interesting aspect to build out is to identify your own values, what you think is important for your life, be it to be you know, pioneering and innovative or be it to be, I don't know, collaborative and friendly or to identify some, some core values and then think about a personal brand that fits that and start building that out, communicating that. And you can see that thought leaders on social media that are, are doing that and that resonate with you. You can pick them out and then start looking how they are, um, how they're communicating, how they're interacting with the world, and then kind of start learning from that and emulating that for your own purpose, mm. because that's an extremely powerful tool. I think that's actually like a great place for us to wrap up, to be honest. That idea of creating an understanding of who you are based on like actual palpable examples and where you want to go from those who are succeeding in the place you want to be in. Thank you so much for your time. And finally, thanks to our audience for listening.